Well, welcome everybody. My name's Nate. If I haven't met you, and I'm so happy that you are here today, I want to say hey to everybody watching online as well. Um, I'm laughing for a couple things. One, 55 plus dinner. It said for those later in life. Who is in charge around here? How does that get through the announcements? It's just kind of close for me, actually. I, I, it reminded me on my, uh, my 45th birthday, I had my, my youngest son. I was dropping him off at school. And he goes, how old are you today? I said, I'm 45 today. And he's quiet for like 90 seconds. He goes, even if you live to 90, you're more than halfway dead. <clears throat> I said, yeah, I'm probably more than halfway dead at this point in my life. Um, how fun... <laughs> I've met Glenn, who was baptized a couple times, but I didn't know his story. I mean, how exciting was that? Wasn't that the neatest thing in the world? I love it. So we started last week a series in a book of the Bible called 1 Thessalonians. So a few times a year at least, we'll look at one specific book, typically a, a shorter book, and we'll just take some time to really thoroughly dig into it, see what it has to say, and I'm always astounded as I read one of these books that's thousands of years old, how human nature doesn't change and God doesn't change, right? So it still applies to us today. So a little bit of review if you weren't here last week when we began this. It's written either 50 or 51 AD, and it's the first book that the Apostle Paul writes, and it's one of the first books written in the New Testament in general. And um, Paul is writing it in response to a three-week period he had in a city called Thessalonica. He's chased out of town. He's been traveling throughout the Roman Empire, mainly what we call Turkey today in Greece, and wherever he goes, he just has this compelling desire to tell people what he calls the good news. And the good news is that God has come to earth. The good news is that no longer... Is your behavior necessarily determine your relationship with God? The good news is that God has provided a way for forgiveness. The good news is that humans and God can now be reconciled, be brought together. We could be sons and daughters. So he just tra- he travels all over the known world, three, maybe even four missionary journeys, and just shows up to towns and finds an audience and starts to tell them. I want to show you a map real quick so that in your mind you can kind of know where this is happening. Paul starts his missionary journey from this town, Antioch. He travels, and in the book of Acts, you can read about all of these visits to these different towns. We're going to read from his interactions with the church in Thessalonica. Today it's called Thessaloniki, and uh, it's a very modern city of a couple million people. And uh, like most recently, they were building a new parking garage, and they found a whole temple to Zeus underneath it. Like, it's just one of those cities that his, the ancient history has been buried. So he's run out of town. And now, we don't know exactly how old this church is when he writes this book. Some would say three or four months. Some would say up to six or nine months. But as he writes back to these people, he could only stay for three weeks. He writes this book. He's heard, he sent Timothy all the way back to sneak into the city. He says, how are they doing? You know, like when we left, there was a riot. People were so upset. The, the individuals were responding to the message of who Jesus is. There's a riot. So Timothy comes all the way back to Paul, who's in Corinth now, and says, it's beautiful. I mean, there's this blossoming young church. And so what Paul writes is incredibly complimentary. It is, 
It's fatherly. A lot of times he's going to have to write books back to people because chaos and dysfunction has entered their church. So you'll write, read a lot like Corinthians. He writes two letters to Corinthians that are kind of like, ay, 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 what are you guys doing? When he writes the, the Thessalonians, it's this incredibly warm, I am so proud of you. He does have some instructions. So what we're going to do is we're going to read um, verse 4 through 10, 4 through 10 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I'd say this, what I love about this text is it gives us a model, a model for what Christianity should look like when in a healthy fashion it's living itself out in a culture, okay? There's plenty of dysfunction in church, right? And uh, I'm a student of church history. There has been dysfunction in churches for 2,000 years. But we have this beautiful glimpse where Paul's going to give them a series of compliments and he's going to tell them, you actually, he's going to use the phrase, you are a model. You're a model. He's going to use the word, Greek word typos, typos. We get uh, so many words from that, uh, typography, um, prototype. He says, you are a typos. You're a model for all of these other churches. Now, why is it important to have a model? So a couple summers ago, my wife's birthday is in June, and uh, she won a new patio set. We, I, I rebuilt a deck, and it was just bare and empty. And so she looked for a long time and found something online, ordered a patio set, and it was, it was big, but it was a great deal. And this is how it started. I happened to be home, and it, it, it was delivered via Amazon Prime. Yeah, anybody ever feel sorry for, like, drivers when you realize, you see, like, a, a, a UPS truck in the middle of absolute nowhere, Montana, and you know they're delivering, like, a toothbrush and it's free because it was ordered on Amazon Prime. And you're like, I don't know about this business model in rural areas. So anyway, the UPS driver pulls up and it's, it's like nine boxes, like big boxes. And he is ticked that his entire truck is filled with free shipping for us. And I'm not kidding you. I went, I thought, I'm going to help him unload it. And when I got out there, he looked at me and he goes, have you people never heard of Home Depot? He literally said that to me. He was just like, my truck is full. So we get everything unloaded. I get it on the porch. And I think, I'm just going to tackle this. It's my day off. Open up all the boxes, these nine boxes. And by the end, I've got like pieces of chairs and tables. And I've got like nine different bags of bolts and nuts and screws. And there are no directions anywhere. Like, so I go back through all the, there, there's nothing. So I think I'll get on the website. And the website is not in English. I'm like, what in the world do I do? So I, I just sat there and I was contemplating, well, I'll just put it all back in the box and send it back. And I thought of that UPS driver. <laughs> I thought he's going to murder me if he has to take this back. So I sat there and here's what dawned on me. There's, there's pictures on the boxes. Right? <laughs> so I, just, I like lined up all the pictures <laughs> on the boxes and just for the next 13 hours, I just sat there, <laughs> thought, can I make these parts look like that? And it took a lot of trial and error, but eventually I got it all together. The only reason I could take all these disparate, varied parts and put them together is I had a model. I had something to look at, something to replicate. So as Paul writes this complimentary section of scripture, he's saying, here's a model Therefore, 2,000 years later, we can look at it 
You go, okay, you painted a picture, Paul. We want to put everything together so that it can look like that, right? It was difficult for these Thessalonian believers. Okay, there's tension in the city, the riot. Um, they're called pagans. Because according to family and friends and business partners, you're abandoning the pantheon, the, the multiplicity of ancient gods that we've been worshiping for some Jewish Yahweh and his son Yeshua? What in the world are you doing? So there's all this tension, all this opposition coming towards them. This is what Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. For we know, love this word, we're going to come back to this. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel, our good news, came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. When he says we, he's talking about himself, Timothy, and Silas who were with him. You, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. Paul says, severe suffering and you still had joy. We're going to have to talk about that. How do you have joy in the midst of severe suffering? And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Those are the two provinces. Rome split up the uh, Greek empire into these two provinces. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Paul's compliments to this church. What do we learn? Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to walk through that text because there are several things that I think are essential for us to examine a little bit more. Number one, what does Paul say? He says, here's what I'm really proud of you for. It's what you know. It's what you know. He says, we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you. So he uses this word, uh, Delphio, Delphio, and it means it's this brotherly, familiar love. Paul's going to use the term brothers and sisters 15 times in this book, more so than any other book in the entire Bible. He's going to say, you're my brothers, you're my sisters. Again, it's this warmth of family. He says, here's what sets you apart. First thing I want to point out is what you know. And it's interesting to me, he doesn't talk about their theology. Remember, this is a church that doesn't yet have the New Testament. This is a church that is months old. But he says, you know what is most important. It is sunk deep into your psyche. It has become your identity. And here's what you know, that you are loved and chosen. Loved and chosen. And ladies and gentlemen, I would say these are perhaps the two most essential things for any human being to know if you are a follower of Jesus. I understand in the room we have people in all different places. Some of us are spiritually unresolved. 
Now, as you hear this, this, this is what it's supposed to look like. It's supposed to begin with this. More than my theological knowledge, much more important than my knowledge of church history, of facts, much more important than anything is this. At the very core of who I am, do I know that I am loved by God? Do I know that I am chosen? Paul is using distinctly Old Testament verbiage when he communicates this. If you read through the first two-thirds of the Bible, everything written before the arrival of Jesus, over and over, God says to a specific people group, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, he says, you are my chosen people, you are loved, and that phrase doesn't ring out to everyone else. It's to this people group. God is working a plan. He's trying to restore humanity. He focuses in on a man named Abraham and his descendants, the Jewish people. And over and over, in the midst, they have this kind of up and down relationship with God. But God always comes back and he says, you know that you're my chosen people. You know that you are loved. Now, Paul is going to take those two words and he's going to pull them into the city of Thessalonica. And he's going to say this, just as God had that commitment to the people, the Jewish people of the Old Testament, he now has that commitment to you. You are loved. You are chosen. It's not based on merit. It's not based on morality or human performance. You are simply loved. Now, how this happens, how God can love us regardless of what we do. Even when I read this, right, I know what goes through our minds because I am insecure in this area too. You're chosen and loved. And some of us are like, you don't know what happened last weekend, Nate, right? Some of us have been attempting to earn God's love, to hope that we could be chosen. And Paul just says emphatically, he says, you are chosen in love. These are immature followers of Jesus. Months into their journey with him, there is dysfunction in their lives. There is brokenness. But they have decided, it is true, that the God of the universe loves me. That the God of the universe has chosen me. And when I know that, I'm not hoping for, I'm not attempting to earn. When I just know that, Literally, it has the potential to change nearly everything in our lives. Because I'm no longer attempting or hoping or pursuing God's love for me. It becomes my identity. I become secure in that. And whatever else happens in life, I'm never afraid. Could God love me even now? Would I still be chosen? even after what's happened? And the answer is yes. Point number one, people in Thessalonica knew that they were chosen and they were loved. Number two, Paul says, and here's how we know that you're chosen and loved. Because that's the next question, right? At least it's, so I'm chosen and loved, well, how do we know this? Paul says, here's how I know that you were chosen and loved. Remember, he was there for the genesis of this church. 
He says, because the gospel came to you, the good news of Jesus came to you with more than just words. So it wasn't Paul showing up in the city and the guy's brilliant, right? He's an orator. He can probably convince anyone of anything. He's going to win every argument. But he says, it wasn't just me showing up and me speaking these persuasive words that made you begin to consider and think. He says, no, no, no. There was something that happened. You know you were chosen in love because these three things happened. One, there was power when I came and spoke the truth. There were miracles that were happening in your midst. People were transformed. There was something tangible that happened when you believed the good news. And also I saw this. The Holy Spirit was present. No longer like God out there. But when you accepted the message of Jesus, it was God in us. That's part of the good news is that God's no longer just out there somewhere beyond the the edge of our solar system. But the Spirit of God can be within us, in our midst, moving through us. Paul says, the Spirit of God showed up and miraculous things started happening. You guys had other languages that you were able to speak and miracles. You could pray and things happened. He says, there was one more thing that I know, I know for certain that you understand you're chosen and loved and that God is with you, it's that there was a deep conviction in your lives. Deep conviction. It's that you hear it and you just thought, this is true. Not, Not true how a mathematical formula is true, but this is true in the sense that it, it resonates what is happening in the world that there's a truth here that has the capacity to liberate. So I had a deep conviction of its truth, but you also had this other deep conviction. It's the deep conviction that you couldn't do this by yourself, that you needed a savior. It's a conviction that human beings are broken without God. And in our world today, that is one of the hardest things for people to accept. We so celebrate and believe in human potential, right? Think of the movies out there, it's about heroic people who do things that are unexpected. And one of the most difficult biblical truths for us to adopt is this. I am broken and I cannot fix myself. No amount of good behavior, devotion, I need a savior. He says, this, this is how I know. This is how I know. So you know that you're loved, you're chosen. Here's how I know that God's in your midst. Thirdly, he says this. Here's the other thing you did. You practiced imitation. Imitation. Um, Imitation is an interesting thing, right? Because if you imitate in a class, it's called plagiarism, right? You want to be careful with your imitation. But imitation is one of the more fundamental forms of human learning. So if you've been around kids... Kids imitate, right? So I remember when all of our kids started talking, you can tell they're watching mom and dad dialogue and they're like, right? They're just imitating the sounds. It's going to take a while to learn the the actual words. They imitate walking. They imitate everything. Imitation is at the core of so much that happens in our world, right? You know those totally bizarre fashion trends? You, You... If you're older, you look back and you go like, oh, people are going to roll their eyes 10 years from now. But at the time, right, I remember my first trip to Japan, there was this, like, movement for women to wear 
platform shoes. So they weren't like high heels. They were big and wide, but the, like where your toe went was about that thick, and then the heel was like maybe six or eight inches. And I remember walking through Japan, just watch, walking like women trying. It was just cool to wear these shoes. Outside observer, I thought, this is really dumb, and it's going to lead to injury, right? Those type of trends don't last forever, but why would somebody do that? Because somebody out there who had influence wore those shoes. So we imitate them. Imitate them. So this imitation idea, I think you can make an argument that it's kind of at the core of how Jesus transformed the world. He found 12 disciples. And as far as we know, there's nothing exceptional about them in terms of their IQ. They were willing. And he said this, follow me and I will make you into something different. So for three years, these 12 individuals and then massive crowds as well follow Jesus and they just watch Jesus and they imitate Jesus. Paul says, when I came to you, interesting, he says, you imitated us and you imitated the Lord. So this is why I even think communities like church are so important. I need help trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. I need people who are imitating the Lord that I can imitate. I met with somebody this week and he looked at me, he asked me a question I don't think anybody's ever asked me. He said, who are your heroes? I started talking and I said, well, these people and these people, and here's what came to my mind. There are people who are following Jesus that I can imitate. There's, there's, he said, well, how about with your family? I said, hey, there's this one guy and I have so appreciated how he loves his family, how he loves his wife. So I'm imitating him because he's imitating the Lord. And so this whole idea, this is part of how you flourished as a church is you weren't afraid to say, all right, I believe, what do I do? Paul said, hey, watch us. Okay. And then you replicate. Imitation is essential for development as a follower of Jesus. Then he's going to make a comment on leadership. Okay? He says, here's another thing that you had is you had healthy leadership. Now, the funny thing is he's referring to himself for the most part. But he says, here's, here's what happened. When we came to you, I love his phrase. He said, we came for your sake, for your sake. Here is where leadership gets dysfunctional. When it's for the sake of the leader, right? I showed up for my sake. No, no, Paul says, we showed up and you were able to imitate us because we were there for your sake. There was no benefit for us. We showed up because we wanted to see something beautiful blossom here. We wanted to see the good news become a reality in your community. Here's where leadership is not for the sake of the people, but for the sake of the leader. There's two forms of leadership that scare me to death. They both start with P. One is parasitic leadership. The second is predatory leadership. You'll see this. You, you've seen this in your workplace. You've seen this in governments. You'll see this in churches. You'll see this all over the world. Parasitic leadership is this. Anybody just love parasites? You have a collection at home. You keep them in your aquarium. Like, this is my pet tapeworm, Billy. Right? No, you don't. Parasites, by their nature, are gross. Why? 
because they cannot live by themselves. They attach themselves onto another living organism and take life. And there is way too much parasitic leadership where it's insecure people who attach themselves by title, by power, onto a person, onto an organization, and find the security that they've ever wanted, always wanted, the, the uh, notoriety they've ever want, always wanted in the people they're called to lead. It's leadership for their sake. Predatory leadership is when you use people. People are simply a commodity. And Paul says, here's one of the things that made it work in Thessalonica is your leadership, he, and I think he's talking to the leaders that are now emerging and are trying to figure out how to organize this thing. He says they're leading for your sake. It's servant-hearted leadership. Fourth, excuse me, fifth, he's going to get into this whole idea of model. You became a model. You became a typos for all the other churches around. Here's the first thing he says. Here's, here's how you became a model. Remember all those other cities on the map? He said you spoke something powerful to them when you turned from your idols to the one true God. That sparked something because here's one of the challenges with, with missionary work and endeavor in the first century is people would go and they just aren't naturally attracted to the person of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, the truth of Jesus. Like, wow, that's beautiful. But the temptation is they just add it to their pre-existing religious worldview, right? So, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We worship Zeus. We worship all these other guys. We like Jesus. Let's add him to the mix. Paul says one of the things that was unique why you became a model is you actually, instead of just adding Jesus to what you had, you, he uses the word turn. He says you turned from these useless idols, turned to Jesus. Here's what it will look like in the first century if you lived in Thessalonica. Our world, our founders of our country, because of their experiences in Europe, said, you know, one of the things that is important to us is that there is a separation between church and state, right? Oftentimes, because the state inserted itself into church, sometimes it's the other way around. They said, we're going to do this. And so we, part of our worldview is these two things are separate. In the first century, there was nothing like that, okay? Church and state were together. If you were to do a business transaction in the first century in Thessalonica, where did you do your business transaction? You did it at the temple of Zeus because the God was watching. So outside of the temple of Zeus, there are all these tables set up where two people would sit across from each other and in the eyesight of Zeus you would conduct your business. In the first century in Thessalonica if you were sick what'd you do? Well it wasn't like hey here's the medical community and, and, and here's where we are. They're together. The first thing you would do if your child's sick if you're dealing with something you went to the temple of Asclepius right? The God of health and you took Money, you took sacrifices and you said, please, would you, on behalf of the gods, would you heal my family member? Would you restore my personal health? And the more you gave, the better chance that these angry gods would take mercy on you. At least twice a week, 
you would have gone to the Roman temple that had been recently erected where you worship Rome and you worship the emperor. You would have shown your allegiance as a good citizen. Then at Thessalonica, they had somewhere along the line adopted four different Egyptian gods. So they had these massive temples to Ra and Osiris and two other Egyptian gods. Then they had this whole other thing called mystery religions where we don't know anything about them because they were verbal only, like somebody told you a secret after you got initiated into it and nobody knew what really happened. So there's just temples everywhere. And so they turn to their gods anytime I need. It's not raining. My crops are dying. What do you do? You go to the gods and you bring sacrifices. And here's what Paul says. You lived that way a long time. Your ancestors had grilled it into you. And when you heard the message of Jesus, you turned from everything you knew about appeasing the wrath of the angry gods. And you began to singularly focus on the person of Jesus. That was a model to all these other Roman cities. It was a radical reorientation of your life. He says, you know something else that makes you a model? You, you are resilient. Acts chapter 17, we read it last week, is like the whole city erupts in this chaos and there's uh, two of the early church leaders are drugged into the streets, mistreated and arrested. He says, even though the church had a hard start, you, you had joy in the midst of suffering. How do you do that? I wish I could tell you that the minute you follow Jesus, like all your problems evaporate. And from this point on, it's like downhill, man. Like it's easy going. But it's not. You read this book, most of the heroes just went through the blender. I mean, brutal lives, dealt with ongoing chronic pain. The, the author of this book, Paul, his body's covered in scars when he finally dies because he has been beaten. He's been in prison. He's been wrongfully accused, two attempted executions. It just goes on and on. Here's, here's one of the secrets, I think, to really thriving, to being a model is that suffering doesn't have to dictate your attitude. See, we all look for happiness, right? Everybody wants to be happy. But happiness and joy are two different things. Happiness is when my circumstances are perfect, right? Everybody in my life loves me. There's no conflict. There's plenty of income, right? The weather's just how I like it. I'm happy. But Paul says, you were joyful even when you're suffering. And that means this. Whatever happens tomorrow, here's what I know. I'm loved by God and I'm chosen. And nothing can shake that. So my joy remains intact regardless of what is happening around me. He says that, that's part of what made you a model. Is that you were resilient. You were joyful in the midst of suffering. Two more things. He says, here's another thing that made you a model. Good news rang out from you. I love this word. Uh, he uses the word akeo, which we get our word echo from. 
So he says, here, here we are, this, this church where I was only there for three weeks. And I spoke the message to you. And something happened in your midst, in this little place of Thessalonica, an influential city. But it, it was like the echo of the good news, that God loves humanity, that there is hope. It began to ring out. He says, it, it rang out to the surrounding provinces, Macedonia and Achaia. But he says, it hasn't stopped ringing out. Your life, the truth of what you believe, your convictions, your transformation is now ringing out throughout the known world. There's just this echo of proclamation. There's hope coming to other cities that maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe the good news is for us. Maybe we could be loved. Maybe we could be the chosen people. I, I, I love it. What if Paul could write that? The message came to Billings. And it so permeated your lives. It so transformed and changed everything that the message began to ring out. Even to Canadians. And to Wyoming. And the Dakotas. And, and the Utahs. And the Idahos. And throughout then eventually the whole world. That there's just this beautiful resonation of a group of people who are saying, hey, we believe we're chosen in love. And that changes everything. And the last thing he says you're a model because you had hope. You have a hope. Paul's going to spend a lot of the time on this book talking about hope. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. He says, you believe that the, this world has an end, and it's an end that is triumphant for Jesus. And if you believe that, you're going to have permanent hope. So I want to end with this. Just a couple of questions. Number one, let's talk about imitation. As I read this text and struggled through it, it made me think, who am I imitating? Who, who am I identifying and saying, you know, I'm going to always be attempting to imitate the Lord, but there's something that's beautiful in this process of discipleship where I find people who are a little farther down the journey and I can say, hey, I'm going to watch you and I'm going to watch you as you imitate Jesus. I'm going to look for a model. I think I can get models, you know, like, hey, this person can really teach you how to handle your money or your business or can teach you how to be an achiever here. But I want to be looking for people that I can imitate. Who are you imitating? Added to that, am I living a life that other people can imitate? I think one of the most powerful things that can happen is when People like at work, outside of the church world, like look at you quizzically and are like, what's different about you? I just think you're a little weird, right? You, you, you don't do what the rest of us do. That's a life that's worth imitating. Who am I imitating, right? And who could imitate me? Secondly, I'd like to ask this. Have I turned from my idols? Now, I, I know that we could drive through buildings and there's not like all these different temples to all these different gods. It's different for us. But really an idol is this. An idol is anything that human beings look to to find identity, comfort, and purpose. Identity, comfort, and purpose. Oh boy, that's kind of problematic because that's like my job and my looks and my career and my, my relationships and it's like, what do I look for to find hope? 
Well, if I'm putting my hope in something, it's an idol. It's something that I bow to in one way or another. Now, here's what Paul says. The, the, the exceptional thing about the people in Thessalonica is they had always looked to all these idols. This was natural. But they turned. And they said, I've always put my hope and my trust in Zeus, Asclepius, all these different gods. I am now turning and I'm putting my hope and my trust in you. And there's, there's a challenge. I thought I dealt with this 20 years ago, right? But I find there's still times where I, oh, I'm going to put my hope and trust in that because I, I, I need security at this moment. Am I turning from that into Jesus? The last question is this. This is, this is the one I want us all to deal with. Do you know? Do you know it, the core of who you are? Has the fabric of who you are been permeated by this? I am loved and I am chosen. Do you know that? Because if you know that, if on the way to work tomorrow, you suddenly have four flat tires. You can get out of the car. And if you don't know, if you don't know that you're loved and you're chosen, you look at your car tires and you're like, God, why don't you love me? How could this happen? This is a catastrophe. I'm going to be late. Nobody's going to believe that I have four flat tires. This is some form of punishment. If you know that you're chosen and loved, you get out and you think, that is weird. It's going to be expensive. God, good thing I know that you love me. Good thing I know that I'm chosen because I don't believe this is punishment. It just happened. What are you trying to teach me? You're not punishing me. What are you teach me about patience? Like, why do you have me here on the side of the road? Am I supposed to do something, right? So I will either reject God, but if I know that I'm loved and chosen, I embrace, I run to him when difficult things happen. Do you know that you are loved and you are chosen? Will you pray with me? Father, there are so many different things to cover here. I pray that the Spirit of God would do the work necessary in each of our hearts. As we read through this, I think for everyone in the room, there's something that we were stirred. There's something that resonates. There's something that was challenging for us. And Lord, we will turn attention to those things. If, if it's turning away, if it's a, a life of addiction that has been our idol, if it's a like, life of uh, success that has been our idol, teach us to turn from that. Lord, for everyone in the room, will we know that we are loved right now, exactly as we are. We can't even comprehend it. We know of our failures and we know of our mistakes. But you choose us. And you love us. And would that permeate the depths of our souls? And would we live from that place? If you keep your eyes closed for a moment, I just want to make opportunity. If you're in the room, here's how you know that you're loved and chosen. Is it's no longer based upon ethnicity. It's no longer based upon moral performance. It's based upon this, that you trust 
and follow Jesus Christ. And when you trust and follow Jesus, you're now the people of God. You're now loved and you're now chosen. For any of us in the room that would say, I need to be in alignment with Jesus where I can be loved and chosen. I'm ready to surrender my life to him. If that's you, would you just boldly raise your hand and wave at me, catch my eye. Yes, ma'am. You're his daughter. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You're his. You're forgiven. Yes, sir. Yes, right in the back. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. You're his. Yeah, there as well. Yes, sir. I see your hand. Anybody else on my left? Yes, sir. You're his. Yes, I see you. If you're in the balcony, will you wave at me? Okay, here as well. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Right here. Yes. I see your hand. Loved. Chosen. Yeah. I see you. Yes. 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 All six of you up there. Beautiful. Hey, would you guys uh, applaud? Big group of people. Hey, for everybody that raised your hands, uh, it's just moving. It's moving to see that happen. This is the beginning of your journey. Would you, just as a next step, would you stop by one of these I Have Decided banners? I want to get a Bible in your hands to help you get started. You are loved. You are chosen. Be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus. Let the message ring out. God bless you. If you need prayer for anything, there's people up front you can trust. See you next week.